Hello and a warm welcome to this special episode marking the incredible milestone of 50 episodes of Harvest series. I'm Rose, your host, and I'm thrilled to have you with us for this extraordinary journey. These conversations have taken place in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey during our harvest events. In these 50 episodes, we've had the privilege of delving into the minds of some of the most brilliant specialists across various fields, exploring topics as diverse as the environment, creativity, breathing, food, healing, or storytelling. Essentially, we've covered everything that contributes to a conscious and enriched life. But today, we've chosen to embark on a unique journey, a journey of transformation. We've gathered snippets from previous episodes that beautifully capture the essence of profound change. The theme of transformation is so rich and varied amongst our guests that it sparks the idea of exploring it further in upcoming episodes. Whether you've been a faithful listener from the beginning or if it's your first time joining us, thank you. I hope this marks the beginning of a transformative journey we can share together. Transformation, as Dr. Mark Hyman explains in episode 6, often begins with a simple but profound choice, what you eat. Uh, your food choices control almost every function of your body and mind. Now, you know, most of us live and work inside. We're exposed to a lot of environmental toxins, the quality of the food, even, even vegetables. The soil is so depleted of, of organic matter that they can't extract the nutrients for the plants. So today, if you eat broccoli, it's 50% less nutritious than it was 50 years ago. So the answer is yes. I think people need basically a multivitamin and mineral supplement, fish oil, and vitamin D. And most people will need magnesium because about 45% of people are deficient in magnesium. So like you said, you felt so much better. It was like a miracle. And so those, I think, are just basic things that people should take as a foundational part of their, their health support system. And I think most of us, if we look in America, and I don't know the data in Europe, but the government does a nutrition analysis uh, study called the NHANES study. And they found that over 90% of Americans are deficient in one or more nutrients at the minimum level to prevent deficiency disease. On a personal level, transformation involves a fundamental shift, much like Prashant Goel's journey from overachiever to self-discovery. He beautifully compares this metamorphosis to the caterpillar's transformative process. Everybody's familiar with the caterpillar to butterfly, but not necessarily what happens inside that process. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, so what happens is amazing, and, and I find it beautiful. Basically, in the last days as a caterpillar, the caterpillar eats many times its own body weight. And, and as it's eating voraciously and gluttonously, one might say, it actually onsets the cocoon phase. In the cocoon phase, the caterpillar's body dissolves in this ooze of cells. It's kind of like a goopy soup. 
and these new cells keep coming. They start arriving, called imaginal cells. And originally, the old cells don't recognize those cells, and they see those cells as a threat, and they attack those cells. But they keep coming, and as they keep coming, they start clustering together. And as they cluster together, they start communicating, and they literally start vibrating in the same frequency. And then those clusters start clustering, and it grows. And then at some point, a tipping point is reached, and they begin to, at, at that point, it's, it's moving towards a time where there's only imaginal cells left. And so then that moment arrives, and intelligence directs some to become antenna, some to become, some of the imaginal cells to become wings, some to become legs, some to become the body. And this new being capable of flight starts taking shape. And then in the last days, if you were to try to cut open the cocoon, it wouldn't be able to fly. It actually needs the self-generated struggle to fly, but it does, and it and emerges as a completely new being capable of flight, which is you know entirely different than what it started as. Daniel Schmartenberger reminds us in episode 19 that global transformation is not only beneficial, but also vital. Ignoring this change consciously can have perilous consequences for our civilization. We can't handle exponential war and we can't handle exponential externalities. So we have to change our relationship with technology really fundamentally and say no other animal had the ability to destroy the biosphere that it depends upon. We now do. We did not for all of human history, so we didn't have to really wrestle with that power. We did kill and enslave and genocide, and every previous civilization doesn't still exist because they all ended up collapsing, mostly for reasons that were largely self-induced. Even when wars happened, oftentimes a war that overtook a civilization was from an enemy that was less powerful than ones that they had vanquished in their prime. They had already went through some internal institutional decay from infighting and things like that. Many early civilizations died from environmentally induced causes. They cut down all the trees. They um, overstripped the soil of nutrients. So civilizational breakdown is actually the norm. It's just never been at a global level. Now we don't live in the United States or China. We live in a place where the cell phone that we're watching this on or the computer we're watching it on took six continent supply chains to make communicating via satellites. And so we live in a kind of global civilization where none of the countries are actually autonomous for the fundamental things that they need. So now that we do have the ability to destroy the biosphere, either very rapidly through exponential technology like synthetic biology or AI or warfare, or kind of slowly through the limits of growth, environmental issues, but that's not all that slow. If you have the power to destroy the nature that you depend upon, you have to consciously steward it or you'll self-terminate. So the gist is we don't have evolutionary capacities. We have trans-evolutionary capacities. Ada Paris, in episode 25, introduces us to the power of critical thinking. The purpose is not to dictate how to think, but to inspire questions, opening our minds to diverse perspectives. It's a quote by a, a guy called Brandon Sarderson, and it says, the purpose of a storyteller is not to tell you how to think, but to give you questions to think upon. 
And that's exactly what I try to do, get people to ask themselves more questions. A great result for me from any talk that I do is that people leave with more questions because then they have to go and explore and they can't unthink that. Yeah. It sticks with them. What should you do with your questions when you have like a brilliant question, not to forget about it? I mean, I'm very good at throwing myself down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, but ask people, just ask people who don't look like you, whose lived experience is different, to try and get a different perspective. When I came up with some of my questions, I went and spoke to religious leaders, I spoke to quantum physicists, I spoke to technologists, I spoke to people in really different worlds that are more versed in those worlds than I am and said, look, I'm seeing this pattern. Is this something that you see in your world? And having those conversations from a very open perspective, it can either help solidify my idea or it can help change my perspective. And either way, it's a great thing. It's a good thing, right? Turning to the spiritual and psychological aspects of transformation, Bibi Rovska shares her expertise in conscious sexuality. Her experiences with women reveal the profound impact of respecting one's body. There is tears, there is sadness, there is rage. These are usually actually the first things, the first emotions that come up because so many women realize that they maybe have mistreated their body or that they have allowed penetration although they were not ready, that they have not fully honored their body in the way that it deserved or that they have been in an abusive relationship for many years or like, you know, all these realizations that come that usually, yeah, bring either sadness or rage at the beginning. But I always like to say we first want to clean the room so we can throw a party. So it takes kind of, you know, lifting the carpet and looking what's underneath that in order to, to really then invite ecstasy and pleasure. Because conscious sexuality is not just about that. There is, again, a lot of, you know, uncovering of limiting beliefs, a lot of trauma that needs to be healed, a lot of emotions that need to be expressed. So it's really, really a very deep work. Which advice would you have loved to receive from your mother or a mm. woman when you were young, when you were a pre-teenager, let's yeah. say? That my body is a temple and that my body is sacred. And so is sexuality. It's an expression of the divine. And that my body needs to be honored, that my body needs to be worshipped, and that it is my right to also honor it so I can at any time say no and that I should really only invite partners inside of this temple when they really honored this that they, when they really honored it when they deserve it when there is a dynamic of respect love consent Addressing trauma and inner change, Dr. Gabor Maté emphasizes the importance of self-compassion. Healing begins with understanding oneself and being kind in the process. Well, you need to begin by understanding yourself compassionately. And uh, 
how you get there depends on you know what kind of help you get. But you need to talk to a counselor who know, who understands all this. Many of them don't. You need to find out how in my life does it keep showing up, this lack of confidence, if I still have it. How do I feel about myself? How can I be kind to myself, compassionate, curious about my own experience? You know, there's lots of modalities for healing. I teach one of them, it's called compassionate. There's other methods, you know, that are really good. There's body work, there's, of course, there's yoga, there's meditation, there's sound healing. I mean, there's all kinds of modalities, but it has to begin with an awareness. If that's a trauma, including someone, if you find out a trauma, including someone who's still alive, like someone in your family when you were a child, and I'm talking yeah. about trauma, yeah. uh, would you advise to uh, interact with this person or to find uh, peace within yourself? Well, the ultimate goal is peace within yourself, you know, because it can't depend on the other person. You know, I mean, what if the other person disappeared or died? Does that mean I can never heal because I, my healing depends on somebody else? So ultimately, we have to find it within ourselves. Now, if there's an open relationship where it's okay to have, you know, I've, I know lots of people who are able to have good conversations with their parents or their adult children. I mean, Look, I traumatized my kids. You know, I didn't mean to. Your parents didn't mean to. But we wound our kids, that we, we do, you know? Uh, and because we don't know any better and because we haven't worked out our own trauma yet or whatever. My kids and I have had great conversations about it. In fact, you know, they, they understand what happened to them. But it's up to them to, I can't heal them. You know, that, 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 that's up to them. But on the other hand, some parents are not capable of having that conversation. They're, they feel too guilty, or they feel too defended, or they haven't understood their own trauma, and they just get very upset if they even hear about that possibility. So they're not open to the conversation. Well, then, then you don't have the conversation. Yourself, you are mentioning you and your children, and yourself had a traumatizing uh, experience, being a Jewish child. Yeah. Uh, in Hungary, you felt you, you couldn't be loved. Yeah. Uh, that's a very uh, traumatizing thing. Can you describe how, as an adult, uh, you would take a step back and identify what were the effects on you? Yeah, well, the effects show up in your life, you know, and particularly they show up in your relationships. So that all the effects of my childhood trauma have shown up in my relationship to my work and my relationship to my to my spouse, my wife, and to my children and so on. I can tell you one example. So when my son, with whom I just finished writing a new book together, and, uh, and we're gonna write another one on parent-child relationships, adult parent-child relationships, but when he was three years old, it was my birthday, my 36th birthday, I think, and he said, I'm not gonna sing happy birthday. I said, well, then you're not getting any cake. Well, I'm still not singing. And this is in front of the whole family. My parents, my brothers, a big family dinner, my birthday dinner. I ended up hitting him. It's, I ended up hitting a three-year-old. Now, what was I so upset about? Why couldn't I just say, okay, kid, you don't, you, don't, you don't want to sing? Don't sing. Here's your cake, you know? He didn't feel love. Exactly. And I desperately needed him to love me because I didn't feel I was lovable. Mountainer Sandy Hill takes us through a transformative experience, surviving one of the deadliest Everest climb in history. Her lesson goes beyond control, inviting acceptance and preservation of energy. 
the lesson that that taught me, and believe me, this was not like a thunderbolt lightning strike of a lesson. It's, you know, I've had 27 years to ruminate over this. But the lesson that it taught me was a lot about control. So I would have called myself in my 30s and 40s control freak, which used to be a compliment. Because, like, everyone thought that unless you were a control freak, you couldn't get things done. And I was a master of getting things done. (laughs) And I had my little checklist every day, and I would always have everything checked off. And I was just sure that my life was unfolding in the amazing, positive, wonderful way that it has. Because I was in control. You know, if, if I hadn't hallucinated, if the the hand of the divine hadn't intervened and flooded my brain with the dopamine and that that it did to cause me to hallucinate, I might well have been the one that was saying, okay, guys, let's do this, let's do that, you know, making a plan. But unwittingly, yeah, I accepted this situation, which like sitting in front of a tea house and not able to get the attention of the waiter isn't that bad. So I wasn't hyperventilating. I wasn't crying and saying, I don't want to die and, you know, or organizing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a preservation of energy. There was really nothing you could do about it. Like Mm -hmm. nothing. You couldn't walk. We all had all the gear that we had. We were taking care of one another. We shared the little resources we had. It was really, at that point, just a a toss of the roulette table, whatever was going to happen. So unwittingly, I didn't control anything. And afterwards, I do remember thinking, like, gosh, like, how did this happen that we all survived? And I didn't, like, I didn't organize anything. I, you know, just, like, it happened this way. And I wondered if that wasn't the reason. And I... I think there are other reasons too, like the fact that we were an incredible team together. Rodo Escalante, diagnosed with autism and ADHD, found solace in diving into the caves and also facing death. His unique journey highlights the power of presence and the release of entanglements. I come from a long path of meditation where I just meditate for four or five hours a day for me to keep this mental stability. Literally, I was not seeking for mysticism or spirituality. It was just the need to be present and the need not to be hypersensitive or hyper-emotional. And once you are in those states, the presence of death, it makes it faster because you have a limited time to be present. And the body knows this. So all your entanglements, all your attachments are disappear, are destroyed. So answering your question is that the water is the bridge for you to integrate what you're thinking you're doing. That it took you hours of meditation, years to practice. But as long as you put the human body on the edge of death, you will integrate your true self. You will integrate your true power. And this is where this methodology, it's mind blown. Because I'm not going to put your physical limits into the test. I'm going to bend your mind in your mental limitations of what you think you can. And when you can start moving the body 
when you don't have exchange of gases or low O2 or high CO2, you start integrating what I love to call the willpower. The power, what the book says, you know you can. It's not what you're thinking. It's just an interface of the mind set up that we need to realign and connect. So when you're in that power, everything that you've been afraid of your whole life or what you think is pain, it switches into pleasure because you're releasing it. Because the difference is when, when you're in the water versus in the ground, you still need to find a, an exit. Uh, the danger is here in a exactly. way. Exactly. And, and then the body it. knows. If you're on the surface, when you train static, I'm a professional deep diver and free diving skills. And when you train static, I mean, you know, you, you can hold your breath up to blackout if you want. And the body knows it will breathe because the first trauma that human has in their life is when we were born. It doesn't matter if you came through your mom or if you went through a C-section. When the baby comes out, we're plucked. And we're not exchanging gases. This is one of the biggest theories and the most beautiful access you do with my methodology to go back into the perfect state like when we're in the womb. Not because you're in the water. It's because you're not exchanging gases. So when the baby comes out to the world, open the mouth, and the vacuum of the lungs suck air and expand the air, and then you have the first pain trauma. But it's just because you're more out of the comfort zone. As we conclude this special episode, we explore the collective opportunity for transformation offered by events like Harvest and Burning Man. Erika Blair shares insights on Burning Man's role as a space holder for personal exploration. It's up to interpretation for each individual in terms of what that really means for them and why they've come to Burning Man. And so rather than having a single meaning that we all get behind, it's kind of a blank slate for all of us to imagine what do we want to let go of? What are the things that we would like to see transform through the power of fire? And uh, an opportunity for all of us to really look at ourselves and our own values and what we would like to bring forth when we're watching that spectacular display of human capability, possibility, and ingenuity. What is the um, goal of uh, Burning Man? Again, if there is any goal uh, determined. Well, I think one of the interesting things about Burning Man is that it's a space holder for people to bring their own goals and their own visions, their own ideas. And so rather than having a goal itself, it's more creates the container and the opportunity for people to understand where their interests lie, where their passions lie, and to exercise the agency that they need to be able to bring their visions to life. This episode was a challenging selection of just nine speakers from our incredible lineup. Perhaps it opened the door for another exploration of transformation from different angles. Share your thoughts with us. Join us for the next episode as we dive into designing the village of the future. What should it look like? Stay tuned. And thank you for being part of this transformative journey with Harvest Series. <laughs>